We're going to be reading out of Ephesians this morning, chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our God, before this morning dawned, you know that at 7.30 this morning we would get the news that we could not worship upstairs, but we'd have to worship down here. We were completely unaware, but you were aware. And Father, as I have processed all that happened this morning and all the confusion and scrambling to set things up well, I really rejoiced in the fact that you are a solid rock and that you are not like circumstances, Father, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God remains the same, and he is a solid rock on which we can stand. And how we rejoice in you, Father. How we rejoice when things around us shift and change because it's, an, it's a symbol to us that our God is not like that. But our God in the midst of all the storms and shifting shadows remains like a rock, stable and firm. And how we trust in you, Father. How we praise you. How we rejoice in you. We're not here this morning, Lord, to be admirous of a building or even to be comfortable in a building. Father, there are people right now all over the world worshiping in caves and underneath houses, just to glorify the name of the Lord and enjoy Him together. And so we thank you for this space you have given us. The main thing that we're here to do today is to meet with you, Lord God Almighty. We are in desperate need of you, Father. We are hungry. We are thirsty. We are needy. And we ask you to come now, Lord. As I preach your word as faithfully as I can, I pray that you would feed your people. Oh God, plant seeds in our hearts, as it were, and cause them to sprout and grow and bear much fruit for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls and the good of the nations, I pray. God, we are desperate for you, so come near to us now, I pray, and feed us. You are our Father. We are your children. You are the vine. We are the branches. We forsake trust in everything else, and we put our hope in you this morning, and we give ourselves to you now in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Now may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the weeks before I went on vacation, we were talking about the nature and the place of singing in the life of worship because of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. He writes this. He says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I had planned to move on today to talk about verse 20 and the subject of thankfulness, but in the end there are three more things that are just stirring fairly deeply in my heart about singing, and I just have to say them in this context. And so if you'll bear with me, one more sermon on singing, and the next week, Lord willing, we'll move on to verse 20 and talk about the subject of thankfulness and how that relates to the life of worship. So three things. Number one is this. 
I have probably already said in other ways what I'm about to say, but I just want to emphasize it again this morning. And I want to just be really clear about this this morning. Singing is not the only thing that Christians ought to be doing, right? We're not living in a musical. So when you go to Cub and when you go to work and when you do the stuff of your family, you can't just walk around doing nothing but singing all the time. Although, to be honest with you, I love musicals and I wish we could do that, but that's not life. And even in heaven, we'll be singing and there will be incessant singing, but we will do more than singing. Singing is not the only thing that Christians do, but... Singing is a vital part of life in Christ, both now and forevermore. And we, as the people of God, ought to give ourselves to it every single day. Just like you think about being in the Word every day, you should think about singing the praises of God every single day of your life. Now, I get this idea mainly. There are other ways that I come to this, but the main reason I'm pointing this out now is what Paul says in verse 19, because he commands us in verse 19 to sing to God with our mouths and to make melody to the Lord with our hearts. And if he's commanding us to do this, he cannot have in mind a sort of hit-and-miss lifestyle where we are hot today and cold tomorrow, we sing today, not tomorrow, but he must have in mind a kind of lifestyle where we're ever singing praises to God. In good times and in bad times, we're singing praises to God. When we feel like it and when we don't, we sing praises to God. If we have ability or if we don't, we sing praises to God. We're ever singing praises to God. It comes to us as believers by command. Now, there are some of you here, I know this for a fact because we talk from time to time, who understand grammar and you care about grammar and you're careful with grammar. And I praise God for you. I really do. And you might look at this verse in verse 19 and point out that the word singing is a what? It's a, it's a present participle. And present participles are not verbs of command. They're verbs that describe ongoing action. And so you might say, certainly Paul is encouraging us to sing to God, but he's not commanding us to sing to God like, like you're saying, Pastor Charlie. But in response to that, I would simply say this. In the Greek language, participles normally take their force from the main verb of a sentence. This is pretty much true in English as well, and it's almost always true in Greek. The main verb of a sentence is the controlling verb, and it, and it colors the participles. So, let's look at verse 18 and see what the main verb is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That verb, be filled, is the main verb of the sentence, and it's a command. It comes as an imperative. Do this. If you're a believer in Christ... If you have been redeemed from darkness and brought into light, then be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And since that main verb is a verb of command, then all of the participles that follow it, there are four of them, also come to us as a command. So we really ought to hear Paul speaking like this. Not just addressing, but address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do this. Sing and make melody to the Lord in your heart. Do this. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this. And finally, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do this. Addressing and singing and giving thanks and submitting to one another come to us by command because they are means by which we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us who are believers to be full of God. And what he's saying is here are four ways to do it. And so these things indeed 
do come to us by command. So this leads back to my point this morning. What I'm asking of you this morning, glory of Christ, is that you give yourselves to singing the praises of God every single day of your life. Just develop it as a discipline. Just like you eat breakfast every day, you eat lunch every day, you eat dinner every day, or at least you eat something every day. Sing praises to God every single day of your life. Every one of us sing about the things that we love, right? Even rough and rumble bikers sing about things. That's why they have rock and roll music. Everybody sings about what they love. And so what I pray about this church is that we would love the Lord our God above all things and therefore sing to Him at all times. The discipline of singing is meant to inflame our affections for Christ and to express to Him our affections in response to His beauty and how I pray that we would give ourselves to that every single day. The great reformer Martin Luther once said this, quote, After theology, there is nothing that can be placed on a level with music. That's a very strong statement, isn't it? After pursuing truth about God, there is nothing that can be put on a level with music. And Luther continues, It drives out the devil and it makes people cheerful. It is a gift that God has given to birds and men. I like that a lot. And how I pray that we at Glory of Christ will utilize this gift with all of our might to the glory of God and the joy of our souls every day that God gives us being. David said this in Psalm 146, 1 through 2. In fact, I take the title of my sermon from these verses. He said, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. David is saying, for as long as God gives me life and breath and vocal cords and an ability to sing, I will sing to Him with all of my heart. In sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, in triumph and in tragedy, I will sing to the Lord my God. This was David's resolve. And I pray that it will be our resolve as well. I pray that we will gain more and more eyes to see the glory of God and hearts to rejoice in what we see and lips that are willing to sing out His praise every single day of our lives. He's worthy of that kind of praise. Amen? There's not a single day when God is not worthy to receive the praises of His people. And so may He receive it from each and every one of us who believes in Him every single day of our lives. Beloved, even if what I'm saying to you right now makes no sense, or even if it seems to you just like the idealistic talk of a preacher, you know, that's just how you talk in church, but it doesn't really work in real life. Even if what I'm saying is coming across to you like that right now, please, just out of obedience to Ephesians 5:18 through 19, learn to sing to God every day of your life. If you'll just do it as a matter of discipline, eventually the Lord will give you insight about, about why you ought to do it. He'll give you insight into the place of song in the life of Christ. And you will be blessed and your heart will be inflamed for Him. And this leads to the next point that I want to make today. Number two, our commitment to singing or lack thereof has as much impact on other people as it does on us. That may be a bit of an exaggeration because I'm not sure exactly how to measure the impact that singing the praises of God has on the individual soul as 
it's related to the impact that it has on the whole. But one way or the other, and whatever the precise measurements are, the point remains that our commitment to singing praises is not just an individualistic thing. It's a corporate thing. It's not just a private thing. It's a public thing. It's not just a personal me and Jesus in the woods kind of thing. It's a body of Christ thing. And my commitment to it or lack thereof has an impact on everybody and not just on my own soul. In our culture, we're very individualistic and we tend to think about the implications of our actions mostly in individualistic terms. But at this point, our culture leads us astray because to be Christian is to be part of the body of Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian divorced from the body of Christ. To be in Christ is to be a part of the body of Christ. Our main identity as Christians is wrapped around the fact that we are a whole people in Christ. It never says, like in 1 Peter 2.9, it's just coming to my mind, that God made us a people of God for His own possession. Not a person, but a people. So collectively together as the body of Christ, that makes up our main identity in Christ. We are not simply individuals. We are mainly a part of the body. Now I'm not trying to destroy the idea of the individual here, and I'm certainly not denying that there's such a thing as an individual, personal, private relationship with God. Of course those things are true. But what I'm saying is, it's not like there's an individual relationship with God divorced from body life. There's no such thing. To be a son of God or a daughter of God, to be in Christ, is to be in the body of Christ. And our main identity is as a body and not just as individuals. The main point of what God is doing with us, in fact, is building us together into a temple for His own possession. Will you look with me uh, at Ephesians 2.22? Just flip a couple verses back. This to me is... One of the most profound verses in the whole book of Ephesians just gives us a small, tiny glimpse into into where life in Christ is leading eventually. Paul says this, In Him, that is Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So to be Christian is to be a brick in the temple of God that God Himself is fashioning, that He might dwell in it by His Holy Spirit. And the most important thing about you as a believer is that you are part of the whole, not just that you are an individual. And therefore, what you do as an individual or fail to do impacts the whole entire church. I don't know if you had a chance to catch the opening ceremony of the Olympics the other night, but i got to tell you, it's probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. It was just Stunning. If you have a chance, if you didn't catch it, you should go on the internet and see if you can't find a way to watch it there because it, it was really breathtaking. And at one point they had, I think it was 2008 Chinese drummers drumming together for the 2008 Olympics. And it was just the most amazing thing. Every single movement of their bodies was synchronized. And every beating of the drum was synchronized. And every vocalizing of words was synchronized. They were 2,008 individuals, but they were one collective whole, moving as one. And I looked at that, and I thought about a couple things. I thought about the fact that there are more Christians in China today than there are in the United States today. And I really rejoiced that probably a lot of those people in that stadium were actually believers in Christ that really rejoiced my heart. And it made me think about the day when we come before the throne of grace 
as a people of God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, and we sing to him with one voice that our God is great. All of our movements synchronized, all of our praise directed to God. We are many individuals, but we are one body. And I do think that that's a small glimpse of what it means to be in the body of Christ. We are one people, and our oneness is more important than our individuality. In America, that's a hard message for us to hear, but it's true. Our oneness is more important than our individuality. Now, I praise God that I'm one man, one individual, standing before the throne of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. I praise God for that. But more than that, I praise Him that I am being built together with you into a temple for the living God. That I don't stand on my own, but I stand with the body of Christ for the glory of Christ. And it's that unity, I think, that we should value above everything. And we have to come to understand that if we play our part or fail to play our part, it impacts the whole and not just us as individuals. Now let me take a couple minutes and apply all this to our Sunday morning worship gathering here. We meet, it's been a little over a year now, we've been meeting in fact together for worship as believers in Christ, and uh, as we meet Sunday to Sunday, I just wonder if you've ever stopped to think about the fact that each one of us either helps or hinders the worship of this church on Sunday mornings by the way we prepare our souls for worship or fail to prepare our souls for worship. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about the fact that if you do not sing to the Lord throughout the week, that you actually diminish the capacity of this church to sing to the Lord on Sunday morning. Or to put it the other way around, if you give yourself to worship and singing and praising the Lord all throughout the week, you actually augment the capacity of this church to lift and sing praises to God on Sunday morning. I wonder if you've ever thought about that, about the impact that your decisions have on the whole church on Sunday morning. Let's think about it in terms of temperature. Talk, we'll just call it spiritual temperature. Let's say that if a person's heart is cold to the Lord, they're somewhere between 0 and 25 degrees. If they're cool to the Lord, they're somewhere between 26 and 50. If they're warm toward Him, they're somewhere between 51 and 75. And if they're hot toward God, they're somewhere between 76 and 100 degrees. So there's a scale of temperatures. Now let's assume that about 100 people come to church on a given Sunday. And let's assume that 40 of them come in in the cold zone. They have not really been seeking God during the week. And just to be very honest, when they walk through the doors, their hearts are cold toward God. Let's assume that 35 people are in the cool zone and that 15 people are in the warm zone and 10 people are in the hot zone with Christ. Can't wait to come to worship. So that's 75 people that are either cold or cool and 25 people that are either warm or hot toward the Lord. I wonder what that worship service is going to be like that Sunday. Wonder what the experience of God will be like on that Sunday where three quarters of the people of God come into church cold or cool toward Him. Well, I think having been in services like that and sometimes having been the person that's way over on the scale toward the cold side, I think that that kind of service is the kind that will make people leave and think mostly about themselves, about their plans that day, maybe about their perceptions of the church or whatever else, but certainly not with their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Certainly not that. I think it's a kind of service that might have a kind of blessing to it, but would not probably be able to shake and shape a soul and cause it to love God more and to serve Him better and to obey Him more. Because the temperature of the church is just low. 
Now let's reverse the numbers and think about what that would be like. Let's say that only 10 people come in cold, 15 come in cool, 35 come in warm, and 40 people come into this room hot. They've been worshiping God all week long. They cannot wait to gather with the people of God, worship Him in song, hear the Word of God, fellowship with people, serve one another. They cannot wait to be with the people of God. I wonder what that service is going to be like, where 75 people are ready and 25 people are more cold and cool and probably need some grace, need some ministry. What's that service going to be like? Well, I don't know all the details, but I'll bet you at the end of the day in that service, people would walk out saying, God is alive. He is good. He is great. He met with us today. He's here. He's among this church. He's among His people. He is our God. We are our people. We want to know Him more. We want to serve Him better. We want to proclaim His name to the earth. We want to serve the poor. I'll bet you, if 75 out of 100 people came into a church service really ready, you would leave with a sense like that. Because I just believe that God is pleased to grant His presence to a people who are living authentic lives before Him. When people are worshiping Him all week long and not just making a show of it on Sunday morning, He's pleased to grant Him their pres- His presence. He loves authenticity and He loves to bless it with His presence. He hates hypocrisy and arrogance, but He gives grace to the humble. And so a people who worship Him day in and day out are going to be ready to meet with Him together. And I just believe the Lord will grant them His very presence and He will bless them. Give them eyes to see something of His glory and hearts that long for more and more and more of Him. Now, in real life, I don't know how to measure the spiritual temperature of a person or of a church. There's not a kind of thermometer that we could put at the front door, you know, kind of gauge where everybody's at. I don't really know how to do that, but I do think that there's some reality to this metaphor that I'm trying to explain today. I do think that each one of us brings a certain spiritual temperature into a worship service, and that spiritual temperature affects everybody and not just ourselves. And so when you think about preparing yourselves for corporate worship all week long, but especially on Saturday night and Sunday morning, I pray that you will come to realize that the decisions you make will impact all of us every single Sunday morning. The decisions you make are not just about you. They're about all of us. And the decisions I make are not just about me. They're about all of us. We all affect one another. We all affect the spiritual temperature of a room. So if you spend Saturday night staying up late, watching television, playing games, being busy, just whatever, you kind of wake up late, roll out of bed, throw some clothes on, get to church, you're going to bring the spiritual temperature of the church down. But if you will give yourself Saturday night to reading the Word, singing songs to Him, serving one another, doing the things that Christians do when they're walking in obedience to their Father, and if you give yourself a little bit of time on Sunday morning to wake your heart up before the Lord, before you come to church, then friend, you are going to bring up the spiritual temperature on the church for everybody, not just for yourself. And so I pray that you'll do that. I pray that you will give thought this week to the way that you prepare yourself for corporate worship. Because again, your preparation doesn't just affect you, it affects all of us. We live in a body, not just as isolated individuals. Now, I do live in the real world. I'm a pastor, but I do live in the real world. And I understand that Saturday night and Sunday mornings don't always go the way that we want it to go. Amen? And I know that often 
Sunday morning seems to be the time where there's, there's more anxiety and turmoil in a family as you're trying to get ready to get to church than, off, than, than normal for whatever reason. I understand that that happens. I understand that our ideal desires can't always be reality every single week. I understand that. But I still think the point remains. I think that if we will make a commitment to prepare our hearts for worship, it will affect the whole church, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I'm praying that a third of you or a half of you will receive this word from the Lord, heed it, and give thought to the way that you live your life before Christ, especially on Saturday night and Sunday morning. I can promise you that the Handrens are going to think about this together this week, and we're going to make whatever adjustments we have to make for the good of the whole church. Now, I suppose that this train of thought landed on me mainly as I did a bunch of research a few weeks ago on the place of singing in the life of worship, and I came across Psalms 120 through 134. At some point, you probably have noticed in your Bible that that each one of those 15 psalms is labeled with a little thing that says, a song of ascents. And a song of ascents was a song that was written specifically so that when people were traveling to the temple in Jerusalem, they could sing these songs on their way to the temple. No matter which direction you come from in Israel, you always go up to the temple because it was up on a mountain near Mount Zion. And so you're always ascending. You're always ascending up to the temple. And that's why they call them Psalms of Ascent or Songs of Ascent. And so these songs were sung by families and by clans as they traveled from around Israel to go and do corporate worship. Now imagine with me what it would be like if you and your family, probably on donkeys or carts or whatever, I'm not sure exactly how you would have gotten there, but you made a journey down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem or whatever direction you came from. You finally get there. Your eyes land on Mount Zion and on the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And as a family, you decide to sing Psalm 121. Please turn there with me, if you will. This happened a lot. There are countless thousands of people that sang this song as they were approaching Jerusalem to worship with the people of God. And how I wish we still knew the tunes. I can't wait, and I've been praying to God, please, God, bring me near to a Jew who is really in touch with all this stuff and knows the tunes going all the way back. I would love to hear the tunes, but here are the words nonetheless. David writes, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, Don't you think that if you sang that song together with your family or clan on the way to the temple, don't you think it would impact your experience of worship when you finally got to the temple? Don't you think that if the thousands of people who also were journeying there to the temple also sang their way there, don't you think it would greatly augment the experience of worship when everybody finally congregated there together? And I think the obvious answer is yes, it would. It would prime everybody's heart to be ready for worship. I so often feel, when I fail to prepare myself well for worship, I so often feel like I'm just ready to begin when the service is over. 
And, and if we don't prepare ourselves, I think that's what's going to happen to us week in and week out, week in and week out. But there's a better vision for us here. If we will all prepare ourselves, then we will see a great impact on the total worship of the church, not just our individual worship. I think if people would have sung Psalm 121 on their way to the temple, the spiritual temperature of their hearts would have gone up and up and up and up. And so the temperature of the whole corporate gathering also would have been up significantly. Now, I know we can't sing these 15 psalms on our way to church. Maybe you're gifted with the ability to look at a psalm and just make up tunes and sing them. I I know people who do that kind of thing. And if you're blessed that way, God bless you. I think it would be wonderful to actually sing these songs. But there are other things we can sing. The point is not that we should sing these 15 psalms every single Sunday on our way to church, but could you sing something? There's so much available to us today. There's so many books out there. There's so many CDs. There's so many things on the internet of people worshiping. Last night, Kim and I were enjoying some worship together uh, through YouTube, just, just really rejoicing in some things that people had put together and really worshiping God together. There are so many devices that God has provided for us in this day. Can't you sing something Saturday night, Sunday morning, preparing your heart as you make your way to the temple, so to speak? As you make your way to be with the body of Christ, worship your way there. Believe me, it will really impact you. And I pray that you will make a commitment to do that. Because again, it won't just impact you. It will impact the whole church. And how I long for us to be a people who, for whom the spiritual temperature just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. Because I'll tell you, there's actually no ceiling on the spiritual temperature. For eternity, we will grow and grow and grow and grow in affection for God. And we will ever be growing in our desire to express our love and thanks to Him. That's eternity for us. You will never reach the end of your capacity to take in God and to worship Him for who He is. And so why not start now? huh? Why not start raising up the spiritual temperature week by week by week by week by week now? And I pray that we would do that. Now with that, I want to go to my third point, which has little or nothing to do with the last two points. It's just on my heart, and I just got to say it before I stop preaching about singing for lo these many weeks. And the point is this. At Glory of Christ... We believe very deeply in singing both old songs and new songs. This is not a superficial conviction for us. We have a deep conviction about this, that we ought to sing new songs and old songs. And you saw that in the set today. We started off with two old hymns, and we mixed some brand new songs in there. In fact, we mixed two songs in there that we wrote at this church. And we believe that we ought to be doing that, singing old things to God and new things to God. We believe that churches who only sing old hymns are really missing the boat. And we believe that churches that only sing new songs and refuse to sing hymns are also really missing the boat. And so I just want to take a couple of minutes and explain why that is to you. Because as I said, this is a deep conviction for us. There are some churches that mix new songs and old songs to please everybody. And that's not our motive. Our motive is deeper than that. And I just want to say a few words about why we think the way that we do. This train of thought landed on me as I came across the seven texts in the Bible that command us to sing new songs. Let me just uh, read three of them to you here. But there are seven of them. And you can easily search um, in some Bible software or something and find all of them if you'd like to do that later. Or if you want to email me, I'll send you all the texts. But here's three of them. Psalm 33, 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. 
Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96, 1-2 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. And then finally, Isaiah 42, 10-12 Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. And again, going back to verse 10, let them do that by singing a new song to the Lord. Now, seven times the Bible commands the people of God, and really here in Isaiah, all the peoples of the earth, to sing new songs to God. And I wonder why. What is the Bible up to? Why is it making such a big deal about singing new songs? Well, I think it has to do with this pattern of praise that we talked about a few weeks ago that to me is just one of the most vital lessons that has come out of these sermons on singing. The biblical pattern of praise is that a person sees something of the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the goodness, the excellencies of God, whether through the Bible or through fellowship or in nature or or however you see, somehow something of the reality of God lands on you and you see it with the eyes of your mind and then your heart rejoices in what you see and out of that rejoicing comes singing. So seeing, rejoicing, singing. Seeing Him, rejoicing in Him, singing back to Him. This is the biblical pattern of praise. And I think the reason that the Bible calls forth new songs from us is because fresh visions of God call for fresh expressions back to God. New songs are a sign that God is still alive. And it's not just that He was alive 500 years ago when people wrote old hymns, but He's alive today. And I have to express it to Him today in new words, not just old words. I need new ways of saying to God, I love you and you're great and you're gracious and you're glorious and you're worthy of my praise. This is why we sing new songs, because fresh revelation calls for fresh expression to God. From time to time in our marriage, the Lord has inspired me and I have written poems to Kim. And every once in a while, I'll rehearse one of those poems to her, but... To keep the love alive, I've got to make sure every once in a while at least, I don't do this a lot, but every once in a while I've got to write her a fresh poem so that she knows my love for her is still alive. It hasn't died. The poem that I wrote back then was great, but it came from back then. She needs something fresh from me today to show her that my heart is still alive toward her today. And the same is true of God. The reason we sing new songs is because God is alive in us today. Amen? He's alive today. And fresh revelation calls for fresh expression. Now, what about old songs? I'll be honest with you and tell you that I really wish there was a verse in the Bible that explicitly says, sing old songs to the Lord. Sing an old song, people of God. But I couldn't find a verse anywhere in the Bible that said that. And so the way that I do, though, end up grounding the conviction of singing old songs in the Bible is by linking this with the commands in the Bible to remember the works of the Lord. So often the Bible says, remember His works, remember His deeds, remember what He's done for you, through you, to you. Do not forget these things. 
And in that I see a pattern to say, well, we got to sing old songs so that we remember the faithfulness of God. There's many places we could go, but if you'll turn with me to Psalm 77, please. We'll just read three verses. And this is just one example, obviously, of probably a hundred or more we could give where we're commanded to remember the works of the Lord. Psalm 77, starting in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, I'm well aware that the psalmist is not saying that the way he's going to do those things is by singing old songs. I've already said the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us to sing old songs. But what I am saying is that I think that one of the main ways we can work to remember the works of the Lord is by singing old songs that are rooted in the old works of the Lord. And it will cause us to remember His steadfastness and His faithfulness and His goodness to His people over a very long period of time. Let me just give you one example and we'll we'll close with this. Martin Luther uh, wrote the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, sometime in the 16th century. I couldn't find the exact date. I don't think anyone knows exactly when he wrote it. But sometime during his ministry in the 16th century, he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, loosely based on Psalm 46. And this psalm has, this hymn has often been called the battle hymn of the Reformation because it so encouraged the thousands of people who were facing persecution and even death for taking stands on things like justification by faith alone and the fact that the Bible is the sole authority for life and practice in Christ and that church tradition had no authority, not at least not like the Bible does. People were dying for these ideas. People were dying to get the Bible into the hands of people in their language. You remember at that point, the Bible was in Latin, and it was totally controlled by the Catholic Church. It was not in the hands of the people. The Reformers were fighting to put the Bible in the common language of the people and to get it into their hands, and that's just what they did. And they faced a lot of persecution. A lot of people died so that I might have a Bible sitting right there, and you might have a Bible sitting in your lap. People shed their blood for that. And they shed it in this time. And it was in this time that the song came out, A mighty fortress is our God. It was said that when Luther was facing particular hardships or persecutions, he would say to his whoever was with him, he'd say, let's sing the 46th. Let's sing the psalm. And they would sing, A mighty fortress is our God. Now for us to sing this hymn today is for us to root ourselves in history and remember that God was faithful and that therefore God will be faithful. It's to remember that God was good to His people 500 years ago and He will be faithful and good to His people today. Amen? The steadfast love of the Lord has not run out. It's still as full now as it was 500 years ago. And so to sing these old songs is to rejoice in that fact, and to say, Amen, God is faithful, and His steadfast love does endure forever. One of my pastors used to say to me, Charlie, remember what God has done, and trust Him for what He will do. 
And that's what we're doing when we sing old songs. We're remembering the works of the Lord and then trusting Him for the future. We're not just trying to be nostalgic and live in an era that's gone by. That's not what we're doing. We're rooting ourselves in the faithfulness of God when we sing old songs. And that's why we must do it. Old songs, new expressions, we need both things. And we need them desperately. That's why we do it that way at Glory of Christ. As long as I am the preaching pastor at Glory of Christ Baptist Church, we're going to sing really old songs and we're going to sing new songs. And I pray that the Lord would even give us more songs that we can write from within the experience of this people of God because we need to be rooted in history and we need fresh expressions to God. I don't know a better way to end this service but then to stand with you and sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So please stand with me and let's sing with all of our hearts, remembering the goodness and faithfulness of our God. Your kingdom is forever, O God. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you reign over the universe. And you will always and forever reign. And we rejoice in you, O God. We rejoice in your steadfastness. We rejoice in your faithfulness. And we rejoice in the fact that you are alive today, proving your steadfastness, proving your faithfulness, even in the lives of the people in this room right now. God is alive. And we worship you for that fact. We love you for that fact. And how we pray that you would show yourself to us this day and this week that we might rejoice in you and that we might praise you as we ought. We love you, our Father. And we ask you to release a spirit of worship and praise in this church simply because you are worthy of that. We give ourselves to you, Father. We give our vocal cords to you. Train us to sing in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.